I personally think that it's really important that regenerative does not be put in the box, that, that we don't quantify it exactly, you know. I, I think, you know, the bottom line is, are we bringing and encouraging life or not? Kia ora, ko Debbie Tokawingua. I'm Debbie Clark. Kia ora, ko Josie Tokawingua. I'm Josie Major. Welcome back to the Good Awaits podcast. How are you doing today, Debbie? Much better than yesterday, Josie. <laughs> Feeling much better than yesterday. We didn't have a good day yesterday, did we? We thought- jumped online since we're in different places to try and record the introduction and harvest for this episode and uh, couldn't do it, right? Yeah, uh, as we record this, we've got heat waves across across Europe and the United States where, where Debbie is and here in New Zealand, we've got huge amounts of flooding um, across North and South Island. So it's feeling quite uh, quite depressing and I think that was getting to us yesterday. But but I think what we were saying just before before jumping on here is that all the more reason to be sharing these stories of, of sort of hope and what a different model could look like. Yeah, I think following on from Suzanne's episode, which was our previous episode, um, you know, when you're really aware of what's happening, it can be emotionally challenging. And that's an important thing to acknowledge and share and support each other through. And it's really important to have hope because, you know, no longer are climate deniers the biggest challenge we have, but um, people feeling despairing and not doing anything or feeling it's hopeless is now the greatest challenge. So we will acknowledge our despair and continue to feel hopeful <laughs> at the same time and bring you stories of hope. And this is one. There's a great story about Brian McGaw, who is um, one epic human being living in New Zealand. And uh, he's the managing director of River Valley Ventures. It's a family owned and owned and operated company that's been going since 1986, been in tourism since 1986 as a uh, river rafting company. So now owned by Brian and his wife, Nicola, and their family. Yeah, you'll hear the whole the whole story of River Valley and the way it's shifted over the last couple of years. But now uh, the property has an accommodation lodge with a restaurant and bar. It's got rafting, uh, whitewater rafting on the Rangatike River uh, near them. Horse trekking, e-bikes, permaculture gardens. It's just a beautiful, um, beautiful spot. And uh, we're really excited to share with you the sort of journey that they've been on um, towards this regenerative model, which is very much at the heart of the way that they do business. And uh, for those of you who are joining us on our Good Awaits trip, we're, um, we're, we've created this trip to try and bring people along to be inspired and meet these amazing people. So Brian is, is someone who, um, Brian and his family will be spending time at River Valley Lodge. So if you've signed up for our trip, then listen up, you'll enjoy this episode. So this, this episode is really about Brian's personal journey as he's uh, learned about and put into practice some of these regenerative and holistic principles that are now at the heart of his business and also the, the journey that his his business and his family have been on um, as a part of that as well. So we started out by asking Brian about River Valley's origins and, and where they started from. Thanks, Josie. So River Valley is a, um, a family business, family tourism business at the back of Tai Happy. And Tai Happy is a small central North Island town. So we're, we're certainly not in um, tourism central by any way, shape or form. Um, 
the actual business itself, it, uh, uh, that's River Valley, was started by my father-in-law, my wife's uh, father, um, who was always sort of a lot more interested in other things than farming. He was a, a farmer. And um, during the late 1970s, whitewater rafting um, as, as sort of an adventure pursuit hit the shores of New Zealand. Um, we'd only been sort of kayaking and things like that up until then. And we ended up, by chance, the Rangitike River is the, is the back of what was the family farm. And the, the section of river there is, is a grade five section. Well, that, was, that used to be the bread and butter. And that um, was right on our doorstep. And so... River Valley officially became a company in 1982 and um, Nicola and I became involved in 86 and it, it became really apparent that um, quite quickly that we, we couldn't survive as a tourism business, even as a rafting business, a weekend sort of business, unless we had like accommodation or something else to draw people here other than just whitewater rafting. Um, so we started building the, what was the lodge in 1987. And um, yeah, we pretty much had our first customers in October 1987 and the share market crashed pretty much the next day. So at the time it was, was far from perfect and the lodge was very unfinished. And um only for those people sort of went through that period, you know, of that late 80s and early 90s, you know, interest rates were over 20%, that the farm ended up being sold. And then Nicola and I um, bought her parents out in 1991. Um, they still live on site. They, they, live, they have quite a cool house overlooking the river, and they are now in their late 80s. So at any one time, we can have uh, four generations cruising around the place. Brilliant. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, those, those years in the late late very late 80s and early 90s were incredibly difficult and um, I often think to myself that knowing what even knowing what I know now you know, with all the experience I've had I don't know whether I'd do it again you know it, it was that hard and it wasn't really until we um, got a relationship with a tour company called Kiwi Experience which was backpackers that we really uh, the business could really became viable, you know, up until then, like we were doing weekend work. And, and what had happened in the 80s, like our business was business social clubs. Um, that was, you know, the weekend business. And then during um, during the week, we would tend to do schools or whatever we could get. Um, and suddenly in the mid-90s, we became a seven-day-a-week business and, and that transformed everything and allowed us to carry on building. And But you, you sort of end up with a tiger by its tail in that too, you know. We became involved with Kiwi Experience when they were just, you know, a small young company as well. And so we grew with them. And then, you know, if we leap forward to the, the um, 2017, 18, 19, you know, we were getting up to 70 people a day of buses, you know, and, and we would, it, the place was just overrun with, with people who in many ways didn't choose to be there and because, you know, they, the bus was bringing them there and we were part of the itinerary and that's where you stayed. So, you know, while most loved the place, not all did, they would far prefer to have been some sort of city or town. And just the sheer number of people was difficult. You know, we didn't really get to know anybody. The impact on the environment and, and the facilities was extreme, even though they, they weren't bad people or anything. I mean, they were good, they were fun, but it was just too many. And we had 25 staff, which were in an isolated rural area. You know, where do, where do they all live? You know, so there was all these sorts of things around that. And 
and it speaks to some of the challenges I think that we've, you know, we've had conversations with other operators too. Like Trent Yo talks about having this mouth on the fire hose of, of the volume of people who were coming at us before the pandemic. That I think a lot of operators, we were in that situation because mm. that was just sort of what happened organically. So, so I'm curious what shifted for you through the pandemic and how you're moving forward. And also, I think in relation to the 80s, what happened with the crisis, you've already been through one major crisis and, and had to learn to sort of adapt and evolve from that too. So in that context as well, I'm curious to hear what shifted for you. So if we start with the 80s, you know, we, we didn't really have any background in tourism or marketing, you know, and it was pre-digital which made it really difficult and really expensive for us to market. And I, I think there we, we just really threw the net out pretty wide. It was a shotgun approach and just tried to, to not be in people's faces, but to be there where you could be noticed, you know. And um, that's basically what happened with Kiwi Experience. You know, we even did courses for long-term unemployed people and, and, and all sorts just to try and survive in the early 90s. And that's something that I, I wouldn't want to do again. It was such hard work. It makes it sound as if I'm a bit allergic to hard work, but I'm not. But it just... <laughs> it's certainly yeah, so not. <laughs> that transition but with, with Kiwi Experience started was, was massive. Uh, we, we had never dealt with backpackers before. Yeah, there was a really steep learning curve for us, really steep. But in, in the end, we, we, you know, we consistently... and. Um, Customer feedback for Kiwi Experience were always in the one of the two or three top places on their surveys, on their customer surveys. So, I mean, like, we were doing a good job. So just sort of going forward to that transition, it's just interesting that we had an ex-guide and his family um, who met his, his wife and all the rest of it at River Valley, as that tended to happen quite a lot, you know, because uh, younger river guides and you know, lots of younger people coming through and, you know, and then they sort of suddenly got this partner that lives, that's from the Netherlands or something, they're going back and forth for the rest of their lives, you know. <laughs> but um, Tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he was saying, and it, 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 you know, we were talking about the changes that we've made here in the last couple of years. And he he said to me, he said, you know, Brian, he said you've always been talking about doing this, and um, and he finished working for us about two thousand and nine. This guy, so it was in the background. We 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 recognised really early that we had to change that that you know what we were doing wasn't, I suppose, in many ways, honouring the place. And, you know, that, that really sort of made, made me think about it. And I think, you know, where we were with, with key, key experience and stuff was it was like being a drug addict, you know. you yeah. Every day in the summer, you got your jolt, you know, and, and it made the place work. It wasn't overly profitable, but, you know, it made the wheels spin around and, and we could always convince ourselves that we were doing really well and, and having a great life. But really, we were working really hard and, and um, Nick has that working hard thing again. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, but it, it wasn't fulfilling. And um, my eldest daughter was talking about this, and she said, you know, Dad, it was quite obvious. She said, you know, you were moving away from the business. You know, you were, you'd were lost interest in it. We're talking about probably about 2017 or something like that. You know, I, and I, I felt it in myself, you know. I created this monster in, in a way and um yeah it, it wasn't fulfilling in, in the areas where it needed to be fulfilling um and i think a, a lot of that fulfillment had to do with recognition by customers of the things that we felt were important that maybe they didn't you know if you're a 20 year old from london you know you come in and you you, you go what's the cheapest beer that with the most alcohol please you know and you, you would tend to go well is this what we're about yeah. mm. 
Yeah, and um, so that's, you know, that desire for change was there for a long time, but COVID gave us the opportunity to actually act on it. So, uh, you know, when New Zealand had its first lockdown in March um, 2020, within three months, we had um, said to Kiwi Experience, no matter what happens, we won't be taking big buses back. You know, we didn't really have a plan going forward fully at that time, but we just knew, right, this is this is it. This is the time to to um, go in a different direction. And so we, the government is part of the, the, the help that was offering the tourism industry at the moment, um, uh, at that time, we signed up for a, a business strategist. And that was an interesting experience in itself. That was the winter of 2020. And we, we thought we'd got something quite good, but it was only after this, that following summer, that's not the start, summer just gone, but the one before, we realised we hadn't gone far enough. It was still sort of a foot in, t- in two camps almost that we had to take the next step, but it had to be like a more of a clean transition. And um, so that's what we did this last summer. And we ended up having the best January we've had in five years. Wow. You know, which was just, and, and it just felt so vindicating, you know, that that we were on the, you know, like we were consistent. We, we For the last six months, we consistently got five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and know google and all the rest of it so it, it's just that's just been great you know? now we just need to do a little bit more <laughs> Wonderful. so what is that shift you've moved away from you've moved away from volume yeah so for for listeners who don't know what is the actual shift you've made okay well um for a start you know our accommodation historically was 80 and then we would bring in some portacons and things like that there over the busy summer months and boost it out to 100 We've actually got rid of all of our cheaper accommodation and we've converted that into a lovely big meeting space, which has been used by um, yoga workshops and, 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 and things like that. And then we some other accommodation we've ensuited. I mean, I'm talking about the physical stuff for a start. Uh, yep. And so now we, we've, we've increased our capacity for people to stay in nice ensuited rooms. And we've still retained four small bunk rooms. You know, because we often have family staying, and you know, mum and dad want a nice room and throw those kids in a <laughs> yeah, nice. in a, bunk, in a small <laughs> bunk. Um, and then you know, it's it was things like you know, we've been growing our own vegetable garden there, which has increased in size a great deal um, for a number of years. But you know, for a lot of our clients in the past, they really couldn't have cared. It was a nice idea, the fact that you you know, might have had a vegetarian on site, but it really didn't really clear. But now, you know, we've made a lot more of that food and, and it's just, you know, people rave about it. We don't have a menu, you know, so it's just what's coming out of the garden. You know, at certain times of the year, we do have to buy extra vegetables and stuff in, but it's, um, you know, it's just that sort of, the place becomes more, it's, it's actually more alive yeah. than what it was, you know, in the sense that, that you know, we, we're eating from the land. It's, people can see that the, they can feel the difference. They can feel it. Yeah. You know, we, we're involved in a, in a predator control program. And, you know, for your overseas listeners, they, they may not be aware of New Zealand's native um, fauna, but that most of it evolved without mammal predators. So, so you know, we've got one of the highest extinction rates of, of endemic species in the world. So we run a, a trapping program using kill traps um, on the Rangitike River and some of the environs. Well, um, when we started, we, we never saw any feel. Feel or a, a blue duck are a torrent duck, and um, they live in whitewater situations. So very 
you know, very much fitted in with, the, you know, who we are. Um, and my father-in-law had never, he came here as a child in the 1940s, he had never seen a, a, a fio on the pool outside the lodge on the river. Well, we've actually got 10 on our rafting section. That's the most ever, the most ever. So, you know, that's, we started trapping in 2014. And, um, you know, we work, we, we work with a lot of other volunteer groups. And so just to see that sort of thing, you know, hear the bird life, you know, just deafening at times. I'm not saying it's like Zealand or something, but it's, it's making a difference, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think on some of the other areas, you know, I enjoy going down to the lodge again. You know, I enjoy sitting down and talking with people and and having a laugh with them. You know, and and um, whereas pre-COVID, I would come down and see the tour guides. You know, because they were coming through once a month, maybe over the summer. Um, or, year, or year round in the case of Kiwi Experience. But, um, you know, really as far as customers were concerned, I, I didn't really interact with, with customers at all unless I was actually physically guiding a trip of some description. Mm, quite a shift. Thank you for sharing some of those details around the shift because I think people people really want to hear that. Like our listeners often ask us for you know, what are examples of, of specific things that people are doing that's uh, part of this shift. And so I think it's mm. it's really interesting. But but just to sort of dig deeper into that, you know, bringing vitality and life back into that place. And you talked, you said previously about honouring honoring the place and feeling like your previous business model wasn't honouring the place. Yeah. Can you talk to us a bit about that and and what's what's special about your place and and kind of how, I mean, I guess the question is, how does your place nourish you? And then how are you acting as a steward for your place? Right, that's a good question, Josie. Um, I, I think in some ways you would actually have to ask our customers some of the answer to that, you know, what they feel when they're there. Because we often have people say to us, you know, we, you know, especially if they've come, you know, visited us before, stayed with us before, that it feels like coming home to them love that what a compliment so yeah it is it's amazing yeah um so you know we we are we are custodians you know anybody who's looks looks after land i think in particular or or a natural environment you know we are custodians we're we're not owners and and i think that we need to adopt that mindset a lot more so i want to use an example so you know i've I've been to a, a number of you know quite you know i'm in my early 60s now so i've been to a lot of different business workshops over the time you know read business books and and all the rest of it you know and they always would and a lot of business books would talk about what's your exit strategy you know and and and, and that really would make that that would make the heckles on the back of my neck just stand up and make me feel quite angry you know what my, what is my exit strategy because it, it seemed to be this whole thing about how you maximize some sort of personal value from something and you know and 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 then you and then you ran off to do what you really wanted to do and um i i found the whole sort of thinking a little bit nuts and you know what inspired me what a lot more was you know reading about some french vineyard that had been in a family for 300 years you know mm-hmm. and, and i would go wow how does that work you know how does yeah. that how can they have that continuity? How can they have that um, that passion in each generation? And undoubtedly, it's not in each generation, but overall to carry on. I'm not saying that everybody should aim for 300 years or whatever, but, um, you know, that's really, you know, that sort of motivated me. So I, I would think, you know, my, my children, like there's no, they don't have to be here. You know, there's no, there was no expectation they would be. 
but they are. There's family and family, you know, and people who are passionate about this place don't have to be blood family, mm. you know. But the, the thing is, if they're passionate and they and they and they they see, you know, what we can do for people's lives, you know, if, if people coming back and saying this is, feels like home, you know, and they they come in and they're long they're like long lost friends, you know, um, yeah, that's really pretty pretty special when you're starting to get to that stage, you know. So that's where we are now, I feel, much more. So people, you know, they're buying into the fact that we're looking after the environment. They're buying into the fact that, you know, um, so the, the vegetable garden, for instance, one of my other daughters is, she runs that now, and she's going to, we're going to split that off as her own business because I, I actually don't believe you can grow a rural area unless you give people ownership of things, you know, in some mm. way, in an economic base, you know. Otherwise, you know, sitting out here unemployed, you know. Mm, yeah. yeah, that's great because you're talking about that real um, connection to the land as custodians and thinking about future generations, mm. right? Like it's not what your exit strategy is, but you know how you can take how you can take care of this land and it can be a place for the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And and part of that's your family that's staying there, obviously, and other people who are also. Feeling that meaning, you're talking about people coming back and saying they can really feel it. It's an experience for them. They're coming home. So what they're experiencing there is something so much deeper. Like there's there's real meaning and purpose in what you're doing. Mm. Yeah, I believe so, Debbie. I do. Um, but it's I've, I've often thought about it, but never been really able to articulate it that well. And I have thought about it a lot, mm. you know, and. I don't think it is something that maybe you can articulate that well, you know? Yeah. This is the challenge. What does it mean to be regenerative? So everything you're talking about, you're regenerating your place, yeah. you're custodians of the land, you're regenerating your family and the people who work with you, whether they're blood family or not, you know, they're still your family. You're regenerating your guests when they come. It's a place of healing and regeneration for them. Yeah. And all of this is regenerating yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I believe so. I believe so. Yeah, so um, I, I have a, a friend of mine who was a photographer here in the late 1980s, you know, on the river, and um, he's retired. Well, him and his wife come down their camper van now, really busy times now, from Whangarei, and they, they drive all the way down just to just to help out, you know, and they, oh. and, they, and they miss it so much, you know, and they just bury themselves doing dishes or whatever, and, and um yeah, it's just fantastic that that is just so they're part of part of something bigger than themselves, yeah. right? Yes, yeah. because what you're doing there, what you're doing there, has purpose and meaning yeah. for everyone involved. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I believe so. So, just going back to that that regenerative thing, I I personally think that it's really important that regenerative does not be put in a box. That that we don't quantify it exactly, you know, because what would be gener- regenerative? In our situation here at River Valley, back at Happy, you know, doing trapping for fuel and, and, you know, planting lots of trees would not be the same thing that somebody who's got a tourism business that's based in a city, you know. It, yeah. it, we, we just have to, I, I think, you know, the bottom line is, are we bringing and encouraging life or not? You know, and I think it's really pretty much that. And how we go about that, I, I think it would be, you know, it's, it's, I often think about like the organic standards, you know, the organic food standards. The organic food standards are all built around what you cannot do. Okay. 
you know, so you're organic if you don't use all these things in the box. Whereas um, the Savory Institute has brought this um, verification scheme in, and they go to people's farms and they um, and they do it annually, and they just there's a lot of, lot of indicators, you know, how much carbon is there in the soil, you know, how much biodiversity is there, and 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 a bunch of measurements, and that's the only criteria. Are you improving or not? And if you're improving, then that's great. You know, and, and, and they're saying, we don't really mind how you get there, but these indicators are, are for life. You know? That's right. And, yeah. and, and I think that's where we need to have our thinking. You know, it's, is what we're doing, is it bringing life, whatever that life is, whether it's be the soil or community, you know, human community, or, or and if it's not, it's not regenerative. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> and so, so on on that, Brian. Like, what what guides what guides you? Like, what do you sort of look to as as we're on the right track, or we're we're moving in a direction that is is life giving or giving vitality back to our place? What sort of keeps you on track? Um. I think a variety of things, you know, and, and that would depend. My my wife always goes, I'm a Gemini, and that depend on the day and the hour. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, it might be if I'm looking at TripAdvisor and there's five-star reviews with great comments, I'll just, wow, we're on track. But it, mm. but it could be, you know, to seeing 10 Theo on the river, you know. Yeah. We're on track. You know, um, having a really low turnover of people who work here, you know. You now we have people like the the um we just had a joke a couple of days ago, the chef, um, ten years ago, she was put on a, a you know, she applied for the job, we said three month trial trial. Well the trial was never actually officially ended. And, it just, <laughs> <laughs> and she just had the you know, she brought it out that you're still on trial. You know, that was ten years ago. <laughs> Love so, um, right. Those things, and, and obviously, you know, we're, at the end of the day, you know, you're not here if you don't make a profit. Mm. So, you know, and um, yeah. so financially, the business has to be viable. It has to be. Yeah. You know, and the last two years, that's been a challenge for sure. But we are going in the right direction. And, um, but it's, I say it's a balance because it is, you know, the, uh, as you guys know yourselves, you know, running businesses, that you, you have to have a level of, of profitability for it to be sustainable, to, to be regenerative, you know. And if you don't have that, then the business dies. Um, and all those things that you held dear, are, are, you know, can't carry on. Um, so that's part of it as well. It, it has to be a part of it. Yeah. yeah. That, that's, yeah. You know, when we're all in the warm fuzzies at times, you know, that. We'd maybe prefer that wasn't the case, but but it is the case, you know. That's still mm, the cold, hard uh-huh. reality. Yeah, and, um, absolutely. And, to, I, I, you know, where we've gone with is less people and they are paying more money and, I, and they're getting a, a, a better experience. And, um, yeah, it's, it's working. It's working. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's why your story is so powerful, right, because you you had a successful business model uh, you know, quote unquote, successful business model prior yeah. to COVID with the high volume and 
but you've managed to turn that into a successful business model in a completely different way and in a way that is is on that on that regenerative path instead. And yeah. I think that's really inspiring for other operators who might want to do the same thing, right? Yeah. I'm a bit concerned that that regenerative will just become the buzzword. Mm. You know? Yeah. Um, so are we. And, yeah. and I think already it is a little bit. Um, yeah. Yep. You know, it's you took the box because you become regenerative, or you took the box because you're sustainable, or you know, it becomes a, a, a box ticking exercise rather than where's the passion in it, you know? Yeah. But because it's, you know, I just wrote a blog post the other day about, you know, something hit me, I read, and um, somebody said, I want to have a massive environmental impact. Wow. And I thought about that, and, and, and I thought, that is so true. You know, if you, because everything we, we, we're told about, you know, climate change and stuff like that is about, you know, how we've got to minimise this, we've got to do that. It's, it's really quite negative, and it's certainly glass half-empty stuff, you know. Yeah. And this was yeah. turning its head around, turning the whole statement around and just go, no, the glass is actually half full, and how can I make a big impact? How can I plant rather than two trees? How can I plant 2,000 trees? I like that. You know, and just that, that whole shift in thinking, I, I just, I thought, wow, that yeah. is so powerful, you know, just uh, to think mm. like that and to, and to look at life a little bit differently. So what's helped you on that journey? Because I think this is one of the things we talk about is that there is an inner transformation that happens, mm. right? And you do start to see things differently. I mean, you talk about being a custodian of your place. I mean, that's, that's an indicator that it's a shift in your mindset. How has that come about? Mm. Um, I would have to go back probably to the late 1970s, early 1980s for that. Um, Nick and I were married in 1979, and we managed to buy a little place with five acres just up the road, which has since been sold a couple of times. Um, and we were going to be self-sufficient, you know. So, you know, my favourite books was the Down to Earth catalogue and and. And everything that John that, that John Seymour wrote, you know, I would just that was my Bibles yeah. there for a while. But um it didn't pay the mortgage. Mm. And that was the reality of it, you know. So mm. um, you know, so we we've been in a different direction for a long time, but you know, there was always that um concern, you know, I, I suppose, um always in the background thinking about it. And um I I couldn't for a long, long time. Um, I couldn't figure out how a business like ours could be, you know, what we would call regenerative now. This is you know, pre-regenerative thinking. How could it? You know, we, mm-hmm. we're, and, and this is still true of tourism to a large extent. You know, we're a, capital, uh, a carbon-intensive business. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And... I don't see any foreseeable way in the near horizon that that's going to be anything but, you know. So we, how do we turn that around where I hate the thing offsetting, but, you know, how do we, we, we make a difference in other mm. ways from that? So yeah. um, to go to that real change, though, in 2016, early 2017, as I was saying to you, um, before, you know, I was becoming quite distant from the, the business. Janie, um, our eldest daughter, 
she's the operations manager and she was increasingly just running all the day-to-day stuff. And um, I started reading a, a lot of work by um, a guy called Alan Savory for a start and then other people like him. And um, he was dealing in holistic thinking and holistic management. And that is, and that sort of really got me curious because it was trying to, to pull the different threads in, you know, and, and to go accepting that there will always be unintended consequences of everything you do. Um, but trying to to find a place where your thinking is holistically, that you're trying to bring the different threads in and into um, your decision-making process. And, and also a thing I was really struggling with at the time was what was the purpose of River Valley other than to make money? Yeah. You know, what, what, what was the real point of it all? You know, maybe that was, maybe that was an age thing, you know. Uh, you know, you've worked hard all your life, and that was on the back of actually having our most profitable year we'd ever had. And and I went, that's it. That was the that was the point of all this stuff for the last twenty something years, you know, and um, thirty years. So money is important for sustainability of the business, but it's not enough. No, it's not. Not nowhere near it. Mm. Yeah, so it's it, um, it was something I was really grappling with, and I jacked up with a facilitator and Nicola and Janie and her husband Tom to um, take time out, and we we stayed there for a couple of days with a facilitator, and it was really trying to to nut down what the purpose of it all was, you know, what how does this all fit into everything, just and and what does it mean for the future, and possibly more for me than the others, I think, because I'd, I'd been anguishing over it for so long, you know, what came out of it for me was, was I wouldn't say transforming, but it, it, it encapsulated so much that was important, you know. And, um, mm. and I think the others, when they read it still, because yeah, we, we pull it out reasonably regularly, um, yeah, it, it so speak to what speak to what it is. Oh, okay. So so we basically came up with a one sentence statement of the purpose of this business, and um, this is not the exact wording because I'd have to look it up to get the exact wording. But it's, it's that River Valley will be a regenerative business that benefits the land, nature, our staff, our customers, and our local community, and and just. That in a nutshell, and then you know we we broke that down into actually how that would look like in, in a more physical form. But just that one sentence said that you know well we are now on this road of of bringing life to these things. Yeah, mm. yeah. and in a holistic sense, right? Yeah. That's obviously yeah. hugely influenced by what you've been reading and the holistic yeah. thinking. Yeah, holistic. Management's a big book. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mm-hmm. read it for light reading at all. And, and it's really orientated towards more farming type stuff, but, but the actual essence you can drag out for any business. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and that's what Michelle Holiday's book, Thrivability, is about too. It's all the nested systems that you're part of. Yeah. Right. 
and and I'm I'm actually looking at your uh, your holistic context document, and you you nailed your statement of purpose, by the way, <laughs> word for word. <laughs> yeah. But Great. I remember when I first saw this, you know, it speaks to the level of. Um, time and and thinking that's gone into you all deciding what is your purpose and how do you mm. manifest that purpose you know what's the potential of your place and how do you manifest that and it's beautiful i think there's so much power in and what you've created here as a guiding document for your way of living in your business you know there, there's some things that i found really inspirational too in, in in different fields there's a um i've never been there and i don't really know much more the, about this place and what i've read on the internet and, and seen on youtube and stuff but it's it's a farm in um south western georgia in the united states and um really interesting story um it's called white oak pastures look it up at some stage and the, the guys about my age um and they had been on this land since 1866, about 1,000 or 1,200 acres or something. And he said that, you know, they, in all that time, they never made a loss. Um, often the profit that the farmer made being very small, but, you know, um, and it was him and one full-time staff member and one part-time person that ran the place, and they just ran cattle and producing what they call stokers or stockers or something like that. Um, and anyway, flash forward now 20 years, they employ 174 people. Wow. They've increased that farm wow. to 3,000 acres. They've got their own red meat packing plant. They've built their own plant so that they had total control over their product. They've built a white meat packing plant where they, they run chickens, they run... They reckon the place now that at any one time there's 100,000 beating hearts of, of animals. That they replanted pecan trees, they've, they've got a restaurant, they've got accommodation, they've got, um, you know, all the families involved and all these other people, you know, and it's there's no waste, you know. There's nothing going mm. to the landfill. They they make enormous amounts of compost. They, they you know, all the leather that, you know, that comes off the animals, they're, they're doing something with it. It doesn't go in a hole somewhere, you know. And, and even though it's a totally different business than us, that, that inspired me, you know. I just went, you know, because farms around here are that size, you know, and, and they employ a manager and shepherd, mm. yeah. you know. And, and how do you layer things, you know, and, and it's that, yeah. You know, if we want a lot more than just River Valley as a tourism business, you know, it's that layering. How do you you put more layers in, you know? And and so rather than having to get um bigger in a geographical sense, you you, you become deeper in, in a vertical sense. And it speaks to how you bring in the community too, because I know you talk about wanting to sort of revitalise your community too. You do a lot of work in the community. Um, I'm going to be honest there. I, I don't so much, but Janie and Miranda in particular, Miranda's our chef, are hugely active in, in the local community, massive. You know, so Miranda, mm -hmm. even though she's got no children at the school, she's the chairman of the board of trustees and, and um, they're both fully involved in any community um, Community, you know, fundraising for the school or the the um, you know preservation of the local hall and things like that. So you know, some people in the community would probably feel that the community doesn't need reinvigorating, you know, because they 
I would say they still think that the future is going to be a continuum of the past where, you know, things will just cycle over and all the rest of it. I don't believe that. I think that, mm. you know, these transformative change, whether for good or bad, is going to happen to mm. all our communities, you know, and we, we mm. need to be ahead of the game a little bit and thinking more about you know, how things could work, you know. The average age of a farm around here, you know, is, is my age, is 60-odd. You know, as the mm. odd shepherd, I mean, the odd farm manager, but invariably they've got two children at the most, you know, whereas in times mm. past they would have had mm. five or six. Um, you know, to, to me, there, there is, yeah. it's just going to be a yeah. downward spiral. I can see no way around that. Yeah. Least, yeah. So and, what, what do you see as what's your sort of dream of, of how River Valley might be a part of that? That evolution of your community of your place. Yeah. Okay, Josie. So I, I think it's it's getting that depth of experiences or what we offer or um, how we utilise our land or you know. So um, up by the stables, and you guys will see this next year. We we've done a lot of experimental tree planting with um, chestnuts and thornless honey locusts and hazelnuts and. and um, so we can, sh- I can show you what would grow here and what won't. Um, so in the future, there might be opportunities for, you know, a farmer to to either lease or to sit up on his own back. You know, nut orchards, for instance. Just, just that's mm-hmm. not River Valley, but you know, we, we're doing that background work where we can say, yeah, well, this would grow, that won't grow. Um, as far as River Valley itself is concerned, mm-hmm. you know, so we talked about the vegetable garden. You know, Nick has, um, runs the stables, Nick and my wife, um, and the stables has gone in a totally different direction too. So we don't do rides for novices anymore. Um, we we only do rides for riders, you know. So we've concentrated down on yeah. and on giving a better experience to a specific group of people, you know. So mm. um, the, the horses yeah. aren't in this constant confusion all the time of having a novice on them or yeah. a rider, you know, and so the horses are better and, and those people that she's targeting now have a better experience. Um, mm-hmm. And part of that is an eight-day trek we do. And that we we, we uh-huh. sold out six of those last year of eight people, but 42 of them were from Australia. So <laughs> with the borders being closed, it didn't work too well. But um, uh, uh, part of that ride, right, they were staying at a local marae. You know, and mm-hmm. that's, we're not talking about, you know, a, a Rotorua, you know, marae experience. You know, it, it's a local community marae, you know, for one night. So mm. that introduces another way of looking at things for, for our guests, you know, and um, yeah. and for us, it's, it's a great opportunity just interacting with, part of our community that we, we possibly wouldn't. Well, certainly not in that surroundings anyway. Um, yeah. And then at the lodge itself, you know, I've, I've talked a little bit about that food. How do we make that whole food thing, you know, more a, a pivotal? And, and, you know, I think we're definitely on the road there. Um, we, uh, this last season, we bought some e-bikes, which have been just a hit, you know. They've just been a hit. Not in the sense of, what we orig- how that we originally thought they would work, but you know most people just hire them for half a day, and there's a great forty-two kilometre loop 
it takes people about two and a quarter hours or two and a half hours, depending on how many stops they have and how many photos they take. That just you know, just on these back roads, and um, mm. love it. You know, they really? just love it. They get great views of the mountain, yeah. and they, they see. Yeah. You know, some people, uh, some of the guests, you know, are farmers that they get to ride through these other rural areas that are sort of nice pace. That you know, and it's it's so so to yeah. me, you know, that's adding another level of depth in there. You know, it's it's um, yeah, it, it may not be sort of a, a high. Um, what was the word I'm looking for? The higher motor thing, but it, it's it's just something that makes the business mm. more viable. Puts that another layer in there, you know. Uh, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's totally. right. Totally. And and all of that is helping you be more adaptive and resilient as you're. You know, you've got all these layers, and and you're also interconnecting more with your community that you're in, and so it's all of the experiences, and it's and it all just adds to that diversity of what you're offering that w- does make you, and hopefully your community over time more adaptive and resilient yeah, I, I, to what the future will be. Yeah, right, the, the community I think needs to be, you know, if we consider it from a business point of view, has to be wider than our local community. You know, like so mm-hmm. for. And I'll give you an example, for instance. You know, we don't do guided fishing on the river, but we do provide transportation for fishermen, you know. So, like, a river guide will take people who already fish down the river if they want to. But occasionally we get people go, well, look, I would really like a guided fishing trip. Well, there's a guided fisherman who lives down the river, you know, fishing guide rather, you know. So we'll subcontract that to him for the day. Mm. Now, we could. Mm -hmm if we wanted to, go, right, now. we're going to have our own guided fishing business, but we don't, you know. We, we've made the decision, well, yeah. let's include somebody else in our broader business community who, yeah. who actually does that better than what we would, you know. And um, mm. so so that the yoga workshop we had here, yeah. we're not going to start doing yoga workshops, but we're going to work with people who, you know, who do it really well, you know. And and yeah. and have them do the yoga workshops and yeah, so that's the way I would see also that depth coming up. I think what stands out for me about this conversation is that you can see the mindset shift that Brian's gone through and therefore the practical shifts that have happened in his business and in the way that they operate. And I think, you know, we have so many people asking us like, oh, regenerative tourism, that sounds great, but tell me how to do it. Tell me what it looks like. And, you know, we're, we're not um, really, we don't think that providing a checklist is the answer to this. It's not something that, you know, you can have one set of one set of actions and apply them to every different business. However, a model like Brian's, is so useful in seeing how this mindset shift and practical shifts can come together. And you can see that, yes, he's doing specific, taking specific actions that are increasing the sustainability of his business, but that's underpinned by this enormous mindset shift and and way of thinking that's embedded in regenerative thinking and living systems thinking. So I think that's really powerful. I think, you know, listening to him talk, he he really talked about what 
the opportunity COVID presented, right, to have this pause to really deeply reflect. And it was in that moment or within a couple of months of borders being closed that, you know, they made the decision, we're not going back to the way we were doing business. We're going to move forward in a different way, no matter what, even though they didn't know what that was at that point. And through conversations with his family, they sort of really started to say, what's the purpose, right? They made changes in 2020, had a great season, then said that wasn't enough. They wanted to go deeper. And so really... Uh, had further conversations with the family and the business and said, you know, is our purpose just to make money, right? What What is it? He he really had a search for, to, to discover what the deeper purpose of, I guess, his life and the purpose of the business was. And it takes a huge amount of courage, I think, to to explore those questions. It requires, you know, that we're open and, and perhaps vulnerable and that we'll take risks to try something different, we ask questions we don't know the answers to. Um, I think he said his daughter had reflected back to him that, you know, she saw that he had become more distant from the business. And so he was open to hearing that feedback and exploring it and thinking, what does this mean for me? What do I want this place to be, right? This business and our role here. Yeah. And he speaks so beautifully to that, that role when he talks about being custodians of their place, that they're not owners, they're custodians. And it's such a, that's such an important part of the way that he's shifted his mindset in the terms of the, the stewardship work that they're doing um, of their place. And and I just love that he, he posed this question, you know, he's really the, the core of it, if we're thinking about working in ways that are regenerative, is asking, are we encouraging life? And if we're not, then it's not regenerative. And, and he talked about that on different levels, right? Like on the level of within his family, uh, in the soil of their permaculture garden, in the community, uh, the small community that's around them. I thought that was um, a really wonderful question to be asking and to be putting at the core of the way you think about your business. Are we encouraging life? Mm. That That's what regenerative thinking requires of us, right? And that's the part of the journey you and I have been going on, Josie, is on, on, the, on a personal level, right? What are we doing to to create the conditions for us to thrive as individuals, as people, right? Are we thriving? And then in our work and in our business, what are we doing to nurture life thriving at that level and then at the community level? And it takes it takes a while to start thinking in those terms. Um, there's, there's, you know, it's hard to sort of think about. It's the how-to, right? How do we quantify this? Can we quantify it? And I think I think maybe, you know, as we try to figure out how to how to work on those different levels, I feel like we we've spoken a lot on this podcast about how it starts with this individual mindset shift. Like that's the first and foremost. That's what we have to do, and that's part of this journey that Debbie and I have been on. We have some friends in the industry who have reached out to us and are asking, "Where do I start?" And so there are certainly a lot of actions that businesses can take towards being more sustainable, certainly measuring carbon emissions and, and learning how to reduce those um, among a myriad of other actions. But what we're trying to do here is really look at how do we begin the mindset shift and the work involved so that we can all become more like Brian and the work that's happening there, right? I think it's allowing these these individual actions that we're taking to be underpinned by this different way of thinking is how we're going to move to a regenerative model. So how do we, for example, the pest control, like what 
Brian and his family are doing along the Rangatike River near them where he spoke about their impact being quantifiable in that and that they were seeing the increase of the fio, the the ducks that never used to see on that river and now and now they they have a community of these of these fio. But the way that they're going about that is is with this underpinning of of encouraging life, of thinking about how are we encouraging life in this place and engaging in the place by by doing the trapping and thinking about the native species and the ecosystem that they're a part of and therefore their role in, in, as stewards and custodians of that place, but also engaging their visitors in that process, uh, bringing them along, mm. you know, allowing them to see the impact that that's having as well. So perhaps perhaps uh, encouraging that, that mindset shift amongst others as well. That all, all of these actions, all of this work is, is a part of seeing ourselves as interconnected and part of living ecosystems in our places. And so where do we start with that? And I think for listeners asking, asking that question of what's required of me in order to encourage life in this place, what's required of, of my, myself, my reflection, my actions in order to encourage life in my business, in my community, in my place. Perhaps that's, that's somewhere to, to start the journey. Mm. I hope we have some listeners who will actually reflect on that question and then share with us their thoughts in our LinkedIn group. An interesting episode and one that I f- have found really hopeful and have loved the conversation with Brian. Uh, so we really want to thank him for his time and his energy and, and his inspiration and hope that he's offered to us all. Thanks to our listeners again, as always, for joining us. We'd love to continue the conversations on our, as we've mentioned on our LinkedIn group, Good Weights, a regenerative tourism network. If you want to uh, keep up to date with us, then please subscribe to the podcast on your podcast app. Um, and we'd love you to leave us a review um, it really helps us with algorithms and all that um, <laughs> we'd also love to hear your feedback and um, you, can, you can do that via our LinkedIn group or uh, send us an email our details are in the show notes podcast is posted and produced by ourselves Debbie Clark and Josie Major and our audio production is by Clary Macklin so thanks so much again listeners for joining us on this episode It's great to have you with us on this journey.